you take out your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue in our second part of spiritual gifts. As there is exactly one body, there's also one primary baptism. And one of the things that I think has been so confusing to an awful lot of the church is the rise of what we call the Pentecostal movement, which occurred about 100 years ago, began actually right here in Los Angeles, the Azusa Street Revival. And there began to be an emphasis very specifically on speaking in tongues. And that speaking in tongues was associated with a second baptism, which is actually taught in Scripture, but never is it actually associated with speaking in tongues. And so one of the things that causes this divide that's in the church is that people have a misunderstanding of this second baptism. And so in looking for what is the evidence of that, a specific group of churches landed on this gift that is called the gift of tongues. And so we're going to take a little bit of time and really reinforce that there is exactly one body, there is exactly one Lord, there is one baptism that absolutely everyone who names the name of Christ will experience, which results in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and for many, and for most at some point in time in their life, and for all who should desire it, there is also a necessity of an infilling that leads to an overflowing or a second baptism of the Spirit. And that baptism is described in some detail tonight with some additional gifts that come as people are empowered for the work that God has called us to do. And so I hope it is clear when we leave tonight uh, that in no way, shape, or form am I trying to become a cessationist, that is one who believes that the gifts of the Spirit died with the apostles, because we as Calvary Chapel are not cessationists. We are continuationists. We believe that those gifts still exist in the church today. And so as we move forward, uh, I want us to be in that one body, in that one spirit, that one mind that is in Christ Jesus. And so would you pray with me? And at the same time, we're going to pray for uh, those in Thousand Oaks, including my friend, my brother, who is the pastor, who is the pastor of Calvary Chapel Thousand Oaks, who is now also the mayor pro tem uh, of Thousand Oaks, whose second day in office included a mass shooting this morning, or actually last night. And so we're going to pray for what's going on in Thousand Oaks. Father, we uh, come tonight, and we are the recipients of your grace, your blessings. The beauty of fellowshipping with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And God, we want to lift up right now the community of Thousand Oaks and the students of Cal Lutheran College and those that have been affected by this incredible tragedy again. God, we cry out for your mercy. Lord, for the, the family that is now childless, for the 
wife who's now husbandless for the son who now has no father. God, we ask that your mercy would be poured out upon us. Give us as a people wisdom on how to deal with this situation. Lord, this has happened too often. And, and we need to move to remedy it. And we know that the chief move that needs to be made is one of the spirit. We ask that your spirit would fall upon us as a state, Lord. We've voted this week. But in some ways, we've also grown distant from you. And so we pray that your spirit would be free to reign in this place tonight, that you would bind the wounds that are so raw and open right now in that community. Be with Pastor Rob as he uh, shares, God, with those who need a word of hope in a time of hopelessness. God, would you bless Rob McCoy and the church there in Thousand Oaks as they reach out to the hurting. Fill us with your spirit. Anoint your word. Give us ears to hear what the one spirit would say to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll pick up in verse 12 tonight here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For as the body is one, pretty simple, isn't it? You know, so often we as the church, and I mean the church universal, all of us together, cumulatively, the bits and pieces and parts that are called the church, we make very simple things awfully complex at times. From God's perspective, there is exactly one church. That one body has many members, and there's the reason for the differentiation the diversity that we see in the one body. So there is a good amount of work that can happen through the diversity, which is in the one body. That is built in by the Lord. But division is not from the Lord. Disunity is not from the Lord. Dissension is not from the Lord. Dismissal of other people, not from the Lord. We need to lay hold of this truth because what's happening is the world is watching how the church interacts with other parts of the body that's all supposed to be part of the one church and they're saying, why would I want to be a part of that? I can get that when I go to work because this one church, this one body that has one Lord, that has one faith, has one baptism, that passage there in Ephesians chapter 4, they can't get along with each other. How could they possibly represent a God who is love? How could they represent someone who's offering a free gift of grace when they make a cost to being a part of one of their pieces of the ministry? And so this passage becomes important to us chiefly to recognize that God has made a beautifully diverse body That diverse body is made up of many members, all kinds of parts. Every part is actually necessary, but those parts should work together for the one goal, the one cause, the one Lord, and his name is Jesus. Amen? So I, I pray we lay hold of this truth tonight because it's central to, I believe, what could be used to correct one of the greatest problems we face in our country. 
And that is this angst. That is this hatred. This radically God-dishonoring speech where people cannot have conversations one with another without screaming and yelling and diminishing one another's character. That all comes from a disunity that ought to be not visible in the church. And I pray that we can be a little example of the one body, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. Now, how many times has he said that in one verse? You think he means it? You think the Holy Spirit, riding through the Apostle Paul, is concerned about us being one body? Notice it doesn't say, but the Pentecostal Baptists are out. Or the Presbyterians no longer count. Or the Lutherans or those Calvary Chapel people. They're really weird. You you see, it points to a unity that is also very diverse. We all have a part to play. And so we need to be careful about what we emphasize that the scriptures do not emphasize. Because those things become fuel for division. Being many are one body, and also, so also is Christ. Lots of members of the body of Christ. We don't all look the same, don't all talk the same, don't even all speak the same language, strangely enough. You know the Holy Spirit actually can interpret all languages around the globe. Do you know that? Do you know he can work with all cultures around the globe? You know, one of the things that bothers me is that somehow there's a white Jesus. Makes me nuts. Jesus was Jewish. He lived in a Mediterranean climate, and they didn't have sunscreen. (laughs) Jesus was probably a lot darker than me, okay? One body from all nations. For by one spirit we were all baptized into, here it is the fourth time, one body. Whether Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all have been made to drink from exactly one spirit. How many bodies were we baptized into? One. And there's one church. So it's very clear that there is one baptism that is absolutely for absolutely every single person who names the name of Christ. Do you see it? In other words, there isn't a Pentecostal baptism of the Spirit that leads you to being a Pentecostal. And there isn't a stoic baptism of never smiling that leads you to be, you know, maybe somebody who is a little less free in the Spirit. There's one baptism, that baptism places all of us into the body of Christ. We need to remember that. And instead of talking about some special thing that makes us unique, maybe we ought to talk about the one thing that makes us all the same. You think that might help in our world today? I do. All been made to bring to that one spirit, and that's why... That passage in Ephesians 4 is so clear to to this passage. And therefore, 
I, the prisoner of the Lord, speaking, Paul speaking of himself, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called in all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering and bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Does that sound like a whole bunch of parts that shouldn't talk to each other? It doesn't to me, and Paul's going to go on to make that argument in the rest of our chapter that's before us. So let's deal with this confusion a little bit because I think that it's important. And I want to make really clear here, my Pentecostal brothers and sisters in the Lord absolutely love Jesus and they're absolutely saved and they absolutely know the same Jesus that I know but they're also absolutely wrong that you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. And all that does is create division and it creates a caste system. It it creates something that you can argue over. It creates something that you can manipulate with. It creates something that ultimately is used by the enemy and not by God. And so in correcting that theology, I want to make it really clear, they are my brothers and sisters. Amen? And we're going to see each other in heaven. I don't know what language we're going to speak when we get there, but it's not English because we have more exceptions than rules. I can tell you that. I, I, I don't know what language. I know it's going to be a language suited for heaven. But in the meantime, let's talk about these two baptisms that our reference here. And remember, if you would, when you go back to the second chapter of this book where we started, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words of man's wisdom, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things to spiritual And as we'll see, we get to chapter 14. God is not the author of confusion. So whenever we have confusion in church, guess where it comes from? It's not the Lord. Because he's not the author of confusion. He doesn't confuse anyone. When there's confusion, the blame always lies with us. So let's see if we can clear that away. Doesn't the Bible say there are two baptisms? The answer to that question is yes. But the problem is the interpretation of a single word, baptismo. And where it's used and where it's interpreted, it normally gets put together with a couple of other words. And, and it's, then it may look like to some that it's something different than what the Holy Spirit's really trying to say. Because if there's one faith, one Lord, one hope, all of those things which you've already seen, then you would expect that Spirit to send one message, wouldn't you? Not two or three or ten. So when we have a problem with a specific passage of Scripture, we can always attribute that problem to our understanding, not the Holy Spirit's communication. And so, yes, there are two different baptisms spoken of uh, in, in the body of the Scriptures. And it's very clear from this passage, there specifically in verse 13, that, that there is one that allows us to all be brought into the one body. Because there is only one body. 
And everybody's baptized into that one body. So it cannot possibly be referring to either water baptism or some special, bizarre, weird thing that happens to you that you begin to speak in some language that nobody understands, including you. It's very clear that that's talking about an indwelling, the very same word, an overflowing, an overcoming, if you will, of the Spirit's work, because that's what happens at baptism, isn't it? If you're baptized, it simply means to be immersed. You're you're brought under until you're completely clothed in, in this case, the Holy Spirit completely covering you and indwelling you. So the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence in the life of every single believer. Your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, You now become a dwelling place for the Spirit to work in. And now you are filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem with the world that we live in. As you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, anybody in here ever get a little bit worn down spiritually? I do. As a pastor, I can tell you sometimes it's like I've got a plug in the back of my heel and somebody pulled it out and the Holy Spirit drained right out of me. It's called battling in prayer. It's called dealing with problems. It's speaking to people. It's teaching the word. It's the enemy beating me mercilessly as I try and prepare messages. All those things sap my spiritual strength. And so scripture plainly states that there is a second and a subsequent baptism, and that baptism is for an infilling or a refilling of the Spirit so that I can continue to do the things that God's called me to do and also to maybe do extraordinary things that I have never done before. And that one could be every day. It could be twice a day, ten times a day. It could be as often as you ask or often as you have need we, we liken it very often. We use all kinds of analogous things to a glass of water. As you drink from it, it gets empty, amen? What do you need to do? You need to fill the water back in the glass so that it stays full because eventually it's going to get dry. It's going to be of no value. It's just going to be a glass. Your body is just a glass without being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's saved, but it's going to have no water in it. So we ask for the Holy Spirit to refill us. And very frequently, the Spirit fills us up with what we need, and occasionally the Spirit fills us up with more than we need so that we overflow, so that there is additional things that God can do with us. So the Spirit then controls and empowers us and uses us for his glory. So to be baptized by the Spirit means that we belong to Christ's body. That happens exactly once. We are baptized into the one body. But to be baptized with the Spirit, notice the subtlety there, pretty small difference, isn't it? Two letters in one word. To be baptized with the Spirit means that our bodies now belong to the Lord and it makes us successful because he's now going to empower us each time that we might be used for his kingdom and for his purposes. I can also tell you that those gifts are not permanent, that infilling of the Spirit. You can be drained of it. You can have need, and you can have more than you need. And so the Lord continually is able if we will ask. And so the Apostle Paul is going to help us with this uh, extremely as we get to chapter 13 and chapter 14. 
The evidence of the Spirit's baptism is the witness of the Spirit from within us. Notice Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. And I I want you to lay hold of this. Because there are some differences as you look at this. As that first baptism makes you part of the body, as the second one gives you what you need, there is evidence that you're actually filled with the Spirit. Here it is. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Do you see it? So the primary evidence that you are a child of God is that you are led by the Spirit of God. Guess what happens when you're led by the Spirit of God? You agree with that which the Bible says is from God, i.e. his word. And so to be led by the Spirit of God is to have care and concern for the things of God as expressed in the word of God. So the primary way that we know that we are God's children is when we read the word, we go yes and amen. And not only do we agree with it, we then begin to live it and do it. As many as are led by the Spirit, Paul says, those are the children of God, the sons of God. For did you receive not for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but the spirit received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba Father. For the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Does that sound like you're doing anything to express that? And the answer is no. When the Spirit of God begins to work in us, we begin to live by the Spirit. That's why the fruit of the Spirit, when you look at it, those things seem impossible to your human nature. For the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and gentleness and meekness and, oh, by the way, self-control, amen? As Paul writes to the church in Galatia, those things are not natural to us as human beings. They're unnatural. They're a work of the Spirit. And so... This concept that somehow we would know that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit by doing something unnatural is actually true, but it's unnatural in the sense that it goes against our human nature, not some kind of weird thing that happens to us that no one can explain. It is something that is so different from our human nature that people go, that's got to be from God. So when you're gentle, when you could be crass, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. When you're kind, when you could be mean, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. When you have self-control at the Thanksgiving table, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? When you don't have the second piece of pecan pie, that is the Holy Spirit working in you. Because your flesh is going, eat it. It's not something bizarre that you don't even understand. It is God working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. It's not speaking in tongues. We'll actually see that as we get to verse 30. And by the way, while we're on that subject and before we get to chapter 14, there are exactly two words that are interpreted tongues in all of the New Testament. They are both transliterations of two Greek words, but a transliteration is one language to another language. So when you're talking about translating Greek into English, some way that we would be able to phonetically speak it, 
There are two words, glossa, which I shared with you last time, and dialectos, which I shared with you last time. Both of them, in their context, always mean language. From glossa, we get the word glossary, and from dialectos, we get the word dialect, and they're properly translated in the New Living Translation as language in both cases. And the reason that's important is when you get to Acts chapter 2, it says that they all spoke in their own language, and each one heard in their own language. So some of them were speaking in languages he did not know, but the people were listening heard it in their own language. Now here's the one that's going to kill everybody that's got a Pentecostal background. There is a word that's been made up. It is found nowhere in the entire New Testament, and that is glossolalia. It is a combination of the word glossa along with angelic, basically, to mean heavenly language. It's not in a single manuscript of the New Testament. It was actually put together to try and explain something that was being taught as doctrine. So when someone says, well, the word glossolalia, you can just say, would you please locate that in a Strong's concordance for me? Or a Cruden's concordance for me? Would you see if you can find that in the Young's literal translation of the New Testament? Because here's what's going to happen. They're going to come back to you. You know, I just couldn't find it. Because it's not there. So be careful. The one time that Paul speaks about this subject of angelic speech, he does so in the context of his own life. He does not do it in the context of the church. We're going to deal with that in its entirety in the next two chapters. What are some of the evidences that we do see that Scripture says are evidences of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It's the power to witness. Acts 1.8, the most common passage used to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. And you shall become my witnesses unto all the earth. The power of witnessing has got to be a work of the Spirit, amen? Anybody in here wake up in the morning and you just can't wait to get out and share the gospel? There are probably some of you that do. I'm actually asking you. It'd be awesome if we had a few of those. But most people, when you go to share your faith, here's what happens. I, I can't do it. I don't know what to say. Do I have to do an altar call at my workplace? No, the Holy Spirit helps you to share the gospel with people. The Holy Spirit knows exactly who's ready to hear it and exactly what they need to hear and how it would be best bolstered by a testimony. And guess what happens? It just happens to be your testimony. And all of a sudden, there you are by the power of the Spirit sharing the good news of the gospel when you thought you were just going to work and you were stopping at a gas station. How about joyfulness? We live in a pretty joyless world at times, amen? But don't we have a supernatural reason to be joyful every single day? You need to say amen, we do. Why is that? Because we're going to heaven. Our sins have been forgiven. Our lives have been redeemed from the pit of hell. We have a reason to be joyful every single day, amen? 
So one of the things that we can do to show the work of the Spirit to the world is to actually be joyful. Go, you know what? I have a word for you from the Lord. God wants to work in your life, and he can give you joy. Matter of fact, that the testing of your faith actually produces it. You see, joyfulness. How about submission? Submission to the things of God, the plans of God, the work of God, the work, the work that God wants to do in this world. You know, when you sit down and plot out your career path at some career counselor, guidance counselor at a college, you know what they're probably not going to have on there? Give away all your possessions and go to China. <laughs> Just saying. You're probably not going to see, well, why don't you pastor a small church someplace that really needs to hear the word of God? And oh, by the way, you're going to have to get a job to do that. But when you're submitting to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life, guess what happens? You have joy in selling all your stuff and going off to China. You have joy in pastoring a little church that you're still going to have to have a job to have the privilege of pastoring that church. That's a work of the Spirit. That is proof that the Spirit is alive in you. That's the kind of proof the world needs to see, by the way. That is the kind of proof the world actually needs to see. Not some ecstatic event to where you can't actually explain it, and neither can anyone else. How about Christ-likeness? Can you imagine if the whole church was actually like Jesus? That would freak people out, wouldn't it? You're walking down the street, oh man, the guy looks like Jesus. Walked up and blessed me, and I, he asked if I could pray, and I had, had a problem, and he prayed for me, and I was healed. That's the, what the world needs. The world needs the evidence that Christ is actually in us. And Christ's likeness is at the top of that list. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. How about growing in the understanding of the word? You know, here's the crazy thing about my life. I spent the last 30 plus years studying the word of God. And I still don't know everything it says. And I can tell you this, I haven't found a single case where the Bible's been wrong. Not one. So the more I study it, the more I actually know the heart of God and can tell other people what God's opinion is or what God thinks about a myriad of things. So when someone comes to me and says, well, you know, what does the Bible say about marriage? Guess what I get to do? I get to totally mess with their worldview. When someone comes to me and says, you know, I got a problem with this thing and I just don't want to forgive this person, I can look right at them and say, well, you got a problem with God. Because scripture says, if you won't forgive your brother who sins against you, neither will your father in heaven forgive you. You see, I have answers for people that they desperately need that they're not going to hear from the world. And here's what happens. If you hang on to that unforgiveness, it will result in bitterness. And guess whose life it destroys? Yours. That's from God. You're not going to get that from a counseling book. God's word says that. That's an evidence of the work of the Spirit. I just stand on it. When people challenge me, I usually say something like this. Well, if you can find the verse that supports what you're saying, I'll listen to you. But if you can't, I'm telling you where I said 
these things came from, and they say that, so until you can prove to me differently, I'm standing on what God says, not what you think. Now, that may seem arrogant to you, but I'm just simply sticking with God. When I do that, here's the crazy thing. I've never been wrong. I've had people think I am. But you know what? When I get to heaven, they're not going to be judging me. God will be. So I'd rather be right with the Lord. So I have a growing understanding of the word. And then ultimately it produces this ongoing beautiful power for service for the king and his kingdom. You know what's crazy? Working for God is addictive. It's the only addiction that I will encourage you to actually undertake. I want you to be addicted to serving the Lord Jesus. So that once you get that feeling of serving the Lord, knowing what it's like, that you're like, man, I'm, I'm going on that mission trip. Yeah, I want to sign me up. I'm going to do that too. Why? Because it has eternal value. You know, when you, when you go buy Christmas presents here very shortly, there's not going to be a thing under your tree that's going to have eternal value, just saying. There isn't. And I'm not anti-Christmas, by the way. I actually think it's a wonderful, if it's just a family tradition that you do, praise the Lord if it brings some love and joy and peace in your house. Awesome. But nobody's going to heaven because of the presence under your tree. But somebody just might go to heaven because you stop out on the street and say, hey, why don't you come in? I noticed you've been walking by every single Thursday night. I've seen you and you keep going. I don't know where you're going, but why don't you come in and just... See what God might say to you. You might just be the one piece that see, you you might get to heaven and go, you made it. How can you not love doing eternal things? Amen? Those are evidences of the Spirit's power in you. And trust me, you're going to need to be refilled to do those things. You're going to need to be refilled with the word. You're going to need, be, need to be refilled with the power of the spirit so that you can witness. Because here's what's going to happen. People are going to try and beat you up. People are going to reject the words that you say. People are going to disrespect you. People are going to scream and yell at you. They are not going to want to hear what you have to say sometimes. And you're going to walk away like you just got in it. You, know, you were with Muhammad Ali in his prime and, and you didn't have gloves. It's like, you're going to go back to your house with your head in your hands going, man, I just got thumped. And you're going to need to pray that prayer. Holy Spirit, fill me again. Revive me again unto good works that I might be able to be used to you. Lord, I need you. I'm empty. Fill me. But he's going to fill you with stuff that's useful. Stuff that will help other people. Not stuff that's just going to make you feel good. It really is about unity and diversity. As you look through this, verse 14, and I think we can wrap this up tonight, verse 14 begins with three very important things about what the Spirit does in working unity and diversity in the body of Christ. And it begins this way. It doesn't produce uniformity. It doesn't make us all exactly the same. 
It doesn't cause every one of you to talk like me or me talk like Pastor Chuck or Pastor Steve. It doesn't make any of us different than what we are in that sense. But it makes us all one in Christ with the same goal, and yet we get to keep our crazy quirkiness. Isn't that cool? God actually can use you. You know, sometimes when I think of God actually speaking through me and being able to use my lips to communicate his holy, eternal truth, it almost freaks me out a little bit. It's like, seriously? But he does. But he isn't just making me into a robot that looks like the Apostle Paul and talk like the Apostle Paul and walk like the Apostle Paul. He lets me be me, uses my life experience, the crazy, weird person that I actually am, and he says, you know what? If you'll just give me all that, I can use that. That ought to be a hope to every last person in this room, by the way. Amen? For in fact, verse 14, the body is not one member, but many. And here he actually uses the analogy of a body. Now, please follow this in its train of logic because the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion, but wants to make sure that we're all on the same page. For if the foot should say, because I'm not of the hand, I'm not of the body, therefore it's not of the body. Is that crazy? You imagine your feet, you wake up in the morning, your feet are like on strike over in the other part of the room. We are not playing with you today. We're just going to stand right here. And you, you tell them, you look at them, you go, well, you don't have any connection to blood supply. You're going to die and rot over there in that corner. And oh, by the way, you're not connected to the central nervous system. So what are you doing talking right now? You see how Paul's making a literal argument here. This is nonsense. It's nuts. And he's trying to help us how to understand exactly how important it is that we all stay connected to the body and realize we need each other. Amen? This is craziness. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. He's like, I want to be, I want to be an ear. You see what he's saying? It's like, I'm not going to do this. I'm an eye. But you don't have any optic nerves. You actually can't see anything. Well, that doesn't matter. You see how silly it is? It's crazy. I mean, it's literally nuts talking. Is it therefore not of the body? No, I'm pretty sure this is my eye. Or if the whole body were an eye. Remember that back in the 50s, The Crawling Eye? Anybody remember that movie? That was one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. And it was just a giant eye. It's like a freakish thing, like crawling around in suburbia. Where would be the hearing? You know, then you'd have the sequel, The Giant Ear. It's like you'd have... Now can you put this into the place of the church so you... We're the church of the eye. <laughs> you got over here, you got the church of the ear. Well, we're the church of the toenails. Because <laughs> yeah, everyone has deformed toenails, right? It's like no, no one ever wants to see anyone else's toenails. You, you get the picture? Where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. If they were all one member, where would the body be? 
If every last one of us was an ear, if every last one of us was an eye or a toe or an arm, or, or I mean, I wish more of us were hair, and you could give me some, but <laughs> if, if we were all that one thing, we'd be a mess. If we didn't have the feet and the legs, where would we go? If we didn't have the arms and the hands, what would we do? If we didn't have the eyes, how would we see? If we didn't have the ears, how would we hear? Do you see all of those component parts? None of them can exist without the rest of them. None of them. Now, here's the tragedy of this whole thing. Oh, you can exist with exactly one arm. You can actually still function as a human being. But we call that a handicap, amen? That's something that no one intentionally wants to have happen to them. And the same is true for your eye. If you have one eye, you can see, but you know what goes? Your depth perception. Your ability to have peripheral vision. You have one side of your body that you cannot see anything past about the the middle of your temple. Whereas normally you can see out to roughly 180 degrees or more. You see, the point in all of this is this. We need every part exactly as God has made them and put them into the one body. Because without each of you, the body of Christ becomes handicapped. And I don't say that disrespectfully. I say in a practical sense, we are less efficient. We can do less. We will get less done. When one piece of the body is removed from the the whole body, the whole body suffers. Now recognize that Paul's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about us. He's talking about the one body that he started with, the church. So that means that every single person in this room matters to God. Amen? Every one of you. You are not inconsequential to God. You are not some useless cell to God. You are not some unneeded piece. Every piece, every piece is made for all the other pieces. Now, you can hear through your, your, you can see through your eyes, and you can actually even hear a little bit through your eyes. But you don't hear well. So make sure you realize how important you are to the body of Christ. A second thing is that one body, we discover the dependence that we must have on one another. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And that is spoken in what's called the emphatic in the Greek. It's literally, this can't happen. It's, it's, it's posed to us as an impossibility. It can't happen. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Do you realize what that says? 
It's not the majestic nose that, you know, it is the less important parts of the body that are actually the most needful. Why? Because they're very often the most numerous. Anybody in here, if you're a medical student, you know what the largest organ in your body is, amen? It's your skin. It's your skin. And yet, what do we do to our skin? We fry it, we bake it, we shake it. Right? And then, when you get to be my age, you start putting on SPF 714. We haven't been good to that part of the body, but it's super needful. You know why? It holds everything else together. It keeps you cool on a hot day. It protects your muscles from atrophy. It seems like it's just, you know, when you get to be my age, it's like, well, that's a baggy thing. That's a little longer than it used to be, you know. It's like, why God allows your earlobes to grow long? I don't know. So if you have that condition, don't ask me. But it's needful, amen? Every bit of it. And none of it functions without the rest. Even the hairs on your arms, you know, you you sit there and, you know, we spend all this money trying to shave this stuff off. It actually is there for a reason. They're sensory. They actually help us know our environment a little bit. You see, you see, the scriptures are very, very, very wise. And notice what it says in those members of the body, which we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor on those. And our unpresentable parts, let's just be honest, your unmentionable parts, greater modesty. We actually cover them up because they're that important. But they're also unmentionable. We don't want everybody seeing them. And so he says, but our presentable parts have no need. In other words, when you have things that are meant to be exposed, there's no need to cover those. But even in a human sense, we have the sense to even cover those parts which might cause shame. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, so that there's no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. Now back to the church, he says, look, this is how you ought to act towards one another. That's why scripture says, sin, those who love, conceal it. If your brother has fault, you who are spiritual, restore him. You get it? When someone has a problem, the world goes, Great, I get a story for the National Enquirer. And God's saying in the body of Christ, we ought to be covering for one another. We ought to be caring about what happens to the whole body, that someone who gets destroyed is destroyed destroyed to the detriment of every last person in this room and every person in the body of Christ. We should be caring that people's character are being attacked. We should take those things which admittedly they're unpresentable when someone does something that's not what God would want to do, we should have the modesty to cover them because we need each other. Just because someone falls, we should not be standing around going, 
Man, I knew it. Could see that truck coming for a mile. We should be brokenhearted because that's one of our brothers and a necessary part of the body of Christ. That's our sister. That's someone Christ died for, and the same grace that's in them is the same grace that I need. We have dependence on one another. And here's how we know that. That the members should have the same care for one another, and if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Both sides of the equation are true. When someone in the body of Christ falls, it should grieve the church. And when someone does well, we should be praising the Lord and everything in between. That's how you keep that unity, by the way. Because here's what's going to happen. Let me prophesy over your lives. You're going to have days in your life with the Lord where you're going to be the honored part. And you're going to have days in your life with the Lord when you're going to have the fallen part. One day you're going to need to be covered up and the other day you're going to be doing the exalting. And if you don't think that's true, you haven't lived long enough with the Lord. Because you'll have your day. You'll have that day of brokenness and you'll have that day of exaltation. You'll have that day where you get humbled. You'll have that day where you're monumentally blessed. But know this, what you're going to want when you're humbled is not somebody to stand over and you go, (laughs) see what you did? Man, do you deserve what's happening to you right now? What you're going to want is, can I help you get out of that mud? Can I pick you up? Can I rinse you? Can I clean you off? You really need a shower. You want to come over to my house? Because I don't want to see you stay like that. Because I need you. We need you. Can you imagine if the church actually lived its life that way? Instead of rejoicing when someone falls, being brokenhearted. Because you know, it's easy to exalt when somebody's being exalted, amen, isn't it? It's pretty easy to do that. Just saying. You know, when it's going well, very few, very few people go to Disneyland and, and there's no lines and they go, man, I can't believe it, there's no lines. You know what I'm saying? When it's a good day, it's a good day. We all have a tendency to rejoice in those days. But where we really need help is when part of the body's hurting. And I would ask you to consider in your own life if you're doing all that God's asked you to do in that area. Maybe there's somebody that you know that needs to be picked up out of the dirt. They got themselves really dirty, but they need a hand. And you're you're the one that God's called to pick them up. Will you do it? George Whitfield, incredible evangelist, mightily used of the Lord, speaking at a minister's meeting, a pastor's conference, if you will, took time after the meeting to shake hands with people and a friend asked him, why take time for a group of men that you'll never see again? Why would you do that? You're the great George Whitfield. And he smiled and he said, 
Well, two things. I may actually be where I am because of them. Maybe they're the ones that prayed me into this position. Maybe they're the ones that filled this building with their friends and their family. And the second thing is, I may not need them on the way up, but I may need them on the way down. Could be true for all of us. None of us can say that we don't need the rest of the body of Christ. The third, the final, the closing thing, as that one body, our diversity fulfills the will of God for the whole body. The, the silly, seemingly inconsequential things that's in each one of us are actually necessities in the body of Christ. Do you understand that? That your little weird, quirky things that maybe actually people who even know you don't even like about you, they might be the one thing that God wants to use in the body of Christ. I, I had a period of time in my life where I actually despised some of my own skills. I actually hated them. It's like I, I actually remember asking God, it's like, Lord, I don't know why you ever gave me all these construction skills. The only thing that people want me to do is build things for them. I used to say that all the time to God. It's like, I can't believe it, Lord. Not another stupid construction project. Could you just tell Pastor Chuck to stop calling me? Until I sat in Chuck's office one afternoon. And he's not a man of many words before he went home to be with the Lord. He said, Jeff, I just want you to know how blessed I am that you will go around the world and do the things that I want to do, but I can't do. And I didn't cry right there, but I walked out and I begged God to forgive me for trying to pull the gifts he gave me off of his shelf so that he couldn't use them. Don't ever voluntarily take your gifts off the shelf. God's got a plan for them. And you may not even like the fact that God uses them. But he likes the fact that he gave them to you. And he wants to use them for his glory. Verse 27, let's finish this up. And now you are the body of Christ, members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. And yes, this is one of the rare times when there is literally a first, second, and third place in Scripture. And it does seem so in the original language that there is a, a primary gift and a secondary gift and a third gift in that order. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Then third, teachers or pastor teachers. And then after that, the rest of the gifts seem to take uh, roughly the same value in the things of the kingdom. In other words, there was something very special, a special gifting, an anointed gifting, a very primary gifting that very few people actually ever had, and that was the gift of apostleship. Extremely high. And the second would be the prophets. And in this case, it seemed to be indicating those who could speak a special word for the Lord. In other words, literally those who would prophesy, not just speak forth prophetically what God has spoken. And thirdly, 
people who do what I'm doing right now, which is teaching the word of God. It's the very reason that Paul, as you would write to young pastors, the Timothy to Titus would remind us that it is good that not many of you should become pastors and teachers, for know this, you will suffer the greater condemnation. There's a high price to pay for being errant in the word of God. God's going to judge us. And after that, miracles, then gifts of healings and helps and administration. And these things are not diminished, by the way. It's just very clear that pretty much every church needs a pastor, a teacher, amen? It's pretty simple. That's one of those things that prayerfully that gift as it's utilized, it, it blesses the entire body. I hope. I pray. It's my goal. Should be every pastor's goal. Just to rightly transmit the word of God. Well, I'll tell you what, every pastor needs a good administrator. You certainly want those people who come that are broken to be healed. And then he asks a rhetorical question, a, a question that demands a negative answer and follows it with several others. Are all apostles? The answer, nope. Are all prophets? Answer, nope. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do you all have gifts of healings? No. Check this one out, just in case you're one of those people that think you need to speak with the gift of tongues in order to be saved. Do you all speak in tongues or a foreign language? Same grouping of questions that demand a negative answer. Nah. Do you all interpret? No. But, but, desire earnestly the best gifts. And yet, I show you a more excellent way. So in all of these things, and please get this as we will go to chapter 13 next. What do you think that more excellent way is? It's found in chapter 13. He says you should desire the very best gifts. In other words, the very best that God has for you. And some of you in here have been called to be teachers. Maybe even all of you. And let me tell you how that works. If you're a parent, you have children. You can be a teacher. If you have people at work that don't know the Bible, you can teach somebody who doesn't know anything what you do know. That's being a teacher. It's not the greater exercise of that particular gift, but it is the gift of teaching. Desire earnestly the best things that God has for you. You see, every human body has parts that we cannot do without. Amen? That's true. Sure, you, you can do with just one hand. You won't function as well, but you can, you can get by with one. You can lose a few fingers on one hand, and the hand will still function. It will not function as well. So you can see how there is still complete importance to every single part but if something happens, there are some parts that are really essential. If I take out your central nervous system, you're not going anywhere. If I pull out your heart, you're going to be gone in a matter of a couple of minutes. 
there are parts that are absolutely essential. They're the heart and the central nervous system of the church in that sense. Desire the best things that God has for you. And while none of us, there, there is no person on earth who has all of the spiritual gifts that God could give. There's not a single person. The only one that's ever had that, that's walked on this earth, his name is Jesus. But we can all desire more. We can all ask for more. We can all want more of the Spirit's work in our lives so we can do more things in the Spirit for the Lord. Amen? That's the picture here. And here's what's crazy. It's just like, it's the reason usually that we go to the gym. Some of us go to the gym because we're trying to stave off age, right? It's like we think if we go to the gym that somehow we're going to have a six-pack instead of a one-pack. It's not happening. But you can develop some additional muscle that will help the fact that you're not quite what you weren't once were. So desiring the best things for you still actually makes you better even though you may not be what you used to be. You're still better than what you are right now if you don't try. And so God's given us that picture. Look, try. Ask for the Holy Spirit to work in your life to enable you to do greater things than you are doing right now. For some of you, that's just simply going to be sharing your faith occasionally. For some of you, that will be better, being better parents, maybe a better spouse. Maybe there's some areas of your life where you need the Holy Spirit's power so, so you know how to love your husband or love your wife in a, in a most excellent way. Because as we see in chapter 13, the most excellent way, the greater thing, is actually love. And it forms the foundation of verse 1 in chapter 13, which, as I shared with you, is not really a chapter. It's how we've broken it up. And it's this one supreme thing that makes everything else better. You see, because if I teach in love, I'm a better teacher. If I prophesy in love, I'm a better prophet. If I administrate in love, I'm a better administrator. If I exercise the gift of helps and I do it lovingly, I'm a better helper. Amen? You see how it works? And so as we dig into chapter 13, we'll see that really chapter 13, though we apply it often to love relationships and to marriage, it really is actually about spiritual gifting. And so would you pray with me? I'm going to bring the pastors up and maybe you have a need tonight. You need somebody to pray with you. And please avail yourself of the pastors and uh, I think the worship team is going to come back out and lead us in a closing song, right? Yeah, here it comes. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For this beautiful church, this beautiful body, this assemblage of different parts that you brought together for your glorious purposes called Calvary Chapel of South Bay. And we are yet a subpart of the rest of the body of Christ that you call your church, your bride. And we pray that as we grow individually, Lord, that our usefulness to you would also grow. Lord, that you would experience uh, favor, Lord, with people around the world because uh, we've favorably given them a picture of you. Lord, that as the church, we've given them no reason 
uh, to disbelieve any of your promises. We, we've given them no reason to think that you're cruel or unjust. God, help us to be loving as you are loving. Help us to abide in faith, hope, and love. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word and for the power it has to change our hearts and our minds. And pray that you would make us into that glorious body, fit for your service. Fill us, Lord, afresh and anew. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit's power for what you have for me. Lord, even tonight, Lord, for tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, should you tarry, Lord, would we finish the race more valuable than when we started. In Jesus' name, amen.